Matthew chapter 24 today. And this chapter um, is an interesting chapter. One of the most important chapters uh, in the Bible dealing with last times, last things, the end of the age, prophetic things. And <clears throat> we could easily spend months and months in the next two chapters. Um, we're not going to do that. It's my heart to give you a sort of a cursory, like an overview sort of, of what's going on in these two chapters. If you've been studying biblical prophecy for any amount of time, you've understood the importance of Matthew 24. Um, and you'll still be able to get something out of this, but uh, this is going to be sort of an introduction uh, to biblical prophecy and, um, like I say, kind of an overview. <clears throat> Today we come to the last of five major discourses in Matthew. Because this discourse was given on the Mount of Olives, it is called the Olivet Discourse. And this is Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25. The Olivet Discourse is Jesus teaching on the end of the age, the period leading up to his second coming to set up his kingdom on earth. Now, the Bible teaches that Jesus is going to return to this earth and that he is going to rule and reign on this earth. You know, there are debates as to the timing of how all these things work out, but virtually every conservative Christian group that takes the Bible seriously believes those two things, that Jesus is coming back and Jesus is going to literally rule and reign on this planet. Now, I don't know if you knew that. Did anybody ever get taught this growing up in church? I mean, some of you saw the Left Behind movies and stuff when you were young, and, and prophecy is not completely a new thing. But I'll tell you, I, went, I never heard anything about this growing to church when I was, when I was younger. Um, and I'd been following the Lord for a while before I started to even hear that Jesus is coming back. And, you know, when you think about it, that's kind of weird because, like, what a cool thing to look forward to, you know? I mean, goodness. So... <clears throat> All Christian groups hold that he's coming back, that he's going to rule and reign, all the conservative Christian groups, okay? Now, the debates about prophetic things and about this chapter, they spring from scriptural interpretation methods. Here's what I mean by that. There are those that allegorize passages dealing with end times, and there are those that interpret them literally. Now, allegorizing has led some believers to believe that end times... Uh, events described in places like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Matthew 24, the Thessalonian letters, Revelation, have already been fulfilled in history. There are some that take the allegorical approach to Scripture that say all of the things that Revelation appears to be future, all the things in Matthew that appear to be future, they say those have already been fulfilled in the past. And what they do is they allegorize those things. They say Jesus has come back, but he's come back into the hearts of people. And they make metaphors to try to explain these future things. Really, you can trace that line of scripture interpretation all the way back to a church father named Origen. And he really, he was from Alexandria, Egypt. He brought in the non-literal interpretation of scriptures, which affected how early church history and how the whole course of the church interpreted prophecy. You had through the Reformation, you had like a back to the Bible sort of thing where people were like recovering the literal interpretation of the Bible, but prophecy really didn't get looked at through all that. And the church continued to interpret prophecy through this 
allegorical sort of metaphorical sense. And even to this day, it's only been within, you know, into the 19th century that people have been, you know, coming back and looking at prophetic events through a literal hermeneutic, they would call it, or a literal scripture interpretation. Now, <clears throat> there are those who interpret the scriptures literally, uh, end times events included. Let me give you an example. The Bible says that Jesus will rule, on reign for, rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years after the battle of Armageddon, after the great tribulation. This is referred to as the millennial reign of Christ. Now, some allegorize this and say the reign is in the spiritual hearts of people. Jesus has come back, you know, where it says in Revelation, I believe it's chapter 20, somewhere after the great tribulation part, it says that Jesus will come set up. And they say, well, he's come into the hearts of believers. This has already happened. They're allegorizing it. The people that take it literally say, Jesus has not come back and ruled and reigned on the earth for a thousand years. Therefore, this hasn't happened. That's what we mean by interpreting it literally. Okay. There are those who take it at face value, like I just mentioned, and they say this hasn't happened yet, so it's yet to happen. And those people are called premillennials. Like if somebody comes to you as a Christian and says, what are your view on end times? Are you amillennial? Are you premillennial? Somebody that believes that Jesus is yet to come back and rule and reign for 1,000 years, literally, those are premillennial. Okay? And I'll tell you right off the bat, I'm a premillennial. The reason I'm a premillennial believer is because the literal interpretation of Scripture doesn't allow me to be anything but a premillennial believer. <clears throat> this Calvary uh, Chapel, the Calvary Chapel movement as a whole, and holds to the in literal interpretation of scriptures. Now, we understand in the Bible there are metaphors and word pictures. Jesus says, go pluck out your eye if it causes you to sin. We don't say, okay, we're going to have an eye plucking service today. You know, we understand that Jesus is making a figure of speech, but he's telling a literal truth. And so how this hermeneutic or this way of interpreting the Bible works is you take the plain reading of it first. If the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. That's a rule to kind of get in your mind as a Bible interpreter, somebody trying to understand the Bible. If the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. If something is plain as day in the Bible and there's no reason to believe that it's a word picture, don't go seeking allegorical meanings for it. Right? Now, back to the school of origin, the way origin approached the scripture was he thought, you know, maybe all of this is supposed to be metaphorical. So that it became this thing of looking at all scripture metaphorically. Now, there are those that allegorize the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ saying, oh, he came back in the hearts of believers. There's not going to be a literal millennium. There's not going to be a literal thousand year reign of Christ. And so we would call those people amillennial. That's, that's what they would be referred to. Ah, meaning no, like ah, theist is an atheist, is no God. An ah, millennial is a person that believes Jesus is not coming back to rule and reign. So they interpret prophetic things in the Bible and end time things as they say, this stuff is not literal. It's not going to yet happen in the future. It's been, it already has been fulfilled in history. They don't believe in a millennium. Okay. And if you do your research on it, a lot of the big denominations, Reformed Church, a lot of them, you know, there's a lot of people that are amillennial. Your kingdom now theology people, uh, like your churches like Hillsong, Bethel, these big, huge churches, they are amillennial. They believe in what's called kingdom now theology, where 
the church is actually to keep getting better and better and better and making the world better and better and better and better until the kingdom just comes on earth. So they, they don't believe that there's a literal millennium and their amillennial view of eschatology makes room for their kingdom now theology, right? No. The literal interpretation of scriptures of necessity leads us to be pre-millennial. We believe the events describing Christ's return are yet future. So Matthew, through Matthew 24 and 25, you're going to get the pre-millennial view, which I believe is the correct view. I want to make another comment. There are people that will say things like, oh, you know, you can't understand prophecy. There's many different views of prophecy. They're all valid. I agree with part of that statement. There are many different interpretations of prophecy, but I don't hold to the, to the idea that they're all valid right? They all cannot be correct. The Bible wasn't written like that where it's up for anybody's guess. It's not written like that. When I get an electricity bill in my mail, it's not written to where you could take it as, oh, this, this is just a metaphor, <laughs> you know? And the Bible was written the same way. Uh, God wanted to communicate something to people and he wanted them to understand it, right? And that's part of our literal hermeneutic. That's part of our understanding of interpreting the scriptures. One of them is God wants us to understand what he said. So I believe there are many interpretations. And here I'll say this. There are godly amillennial people. There are godly people that believe these things have been fulfilled in the past, incredibly godly. I will say this. These are not salvation issues. Okay? So we have fellowship with amillennials. We have fellowship with people that have different views of eschatology. Right? These are secondary issues when it comes to that. Right? Now, with that, let me build upon that. I believe, this is my opinion, so do what you want with it. I believe how you interpret the scripture is not a secondary issue. Because if the Bible says literally that I need to deny myself, pick up my cross and follow Jesus in order to be saved, how do I know that's literal? How do I know that's true? How do I know that's a metaphor? Once you get into this allegorical, metaphorical interpretation of Scripture, where are the rules? Because do you know who makes the rules when you subscribe to that sort of interpretation? Man, I'm not comfortable with that. So I believe that this is God's word. Like the Thessalonians, Paul commended them and he said, you receive the word of the Lord just as it is, the word of the Lord, not the word of man. And I believe that all 66 books, God put every word there for a reason. And so I'm to try to figure out what it says, not to tell you what it says, you know, unless I've, you know, I'm trying to figure it out. I'm not trying to make it up, right? And that's how I approach the scriptures. So I'm not going to give you many of the other views on this text, which that was very tempting. I wanted to kind of break it down to how these different views interpret this, but I'm not going to do that because I don't think it really serves us very well, to be honest. I think if you're a, a you know, prophecy nerd Bible scholar, then you'll do that, you know, as your homework. <clears throat> this section deals with this period of time beginning at Jesus' ascension until he establishes his millennial kingdom. So those of you that have a Bible prophecy timeline in your head, the time where Jesus ascended is also called, that time frame that we're talking about all the way to the beginning of the tribulation period is called the church age. So if I use the word church age, I'm using the term synonymously today, okay? Another thing that you should know, at the time of the ascension, where Jesus was crucified, you know, he was resurrected, and then he ascended, the beginning of the book of Acts, that's also the beginning of what we would call last days, or end times. 
How do we know that? Because of what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. Peter says that, you know, remember people are trying to accuse the Christians of being drunk because they're speaking in tongues? And Peter says, no, 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 what you see is God pouring out his, paraphrasing, God pouring out his spirit here in these last days. He uses the prophecy of Joel, which is about last days. And Peter says, no, 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 these guys speaking in tongues, this is the Holy Spirit being poured out in last days. So last days, when did they start? According to Peter, right at the birth of the church, right when Jesus ascended. So this passage is dealing with last days beginning at the ascension of Jesus Christ, at the beginning of the church, going all the way to the point through the Great Tribulation to where Jesus establishes his kingdom on earth. This is what's going on during those times. Question, is this applicable to you? Yeah, you're alive during these times. It's almost a trick question, but I didn't see a lot of you go, yeah, I saw one of you do that. You know? So we, you know, it's Sunday morning. I know I've said a lot of things already. Okay. Everybody's doing okay? No? Back there? Okay, you're going to have to ask your mother. To make it simple, Jesus is talking about what goes on in this world between the time that he ascended and between the time that he comes back to set up his kingdom. So it's how we should be living during this time of the church age. That's the main thing. And that's really what I'm going to focus on as we go through this, is the application for you as a believer during last days, which we are living in now. Here's the main point. Let me give it to you. Since Jesus has instructed and warned us regarding life in end times, we are able to avoid the deception, despair, and deadened hearts that will mark many. Because Jesus has instructed and warned us regarding life in end times, we are able to avoid the deception, despair, and deadened hearts that will mark many. Okay, starting at verse 1 of chapter 24. Verses 1 through 2 here, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. You remember he's just getting done with the, denouncing the scribes and Pharisees. He's been in the temple, Holy Week. He gets done with that. <clears throat> and uh, then... Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they're walking out of the temple and, uh, you know, never to return. Jesus is using strong language. He walks out and uh, this is strong language in Matthew. He's like walking out with like, I'm done with that. I'm never coming back. That's what the Greek would reveal. And his disciples come up and they, sh you know, perhaps to lighten the mood, they say, look at the buildings of the temple. I mean, this was like a complex, like you cannot even believe. And his disciples say, Jesus, look at the temple. Now, why did they do that? Look at chapter 23, verse 38. He just got done denouncing them and saying, you know, I would have taken you under my wings as a mother hen takes her chicks, but you were not willing. And then he says, verse 38, he says, your house is left uh, to you desolate. In other words, you guys are done for, man. Jerusalem's done for. This stuff's over with. And so that mood, you know, Jesus is probably sitting there quiet, most likely, and they're walking out of the temple, uh, and, G and Jesus' disciples are maybe lightening the mood, being like, look at the temple. Another thing, too, is, you know, with that is maybe they're saying, he just said their house is going to be left desolate, and they're turning and going, 
But look at how huge this thing is. Look at how grand this is. Jesus, are you sure? You know, maybe it's that sort of thing. And he turns and he says, um, do you not see all these things? Now, I love that. They see a magnificent temple and Jesus sees things. That's all they are. Now, the temple was idolatrous in these days. They worshiped the temple. It was like literally the center of the Jewish life. He says, not one stone shall be left here upon another. Now, this would have been a jaw dropper. They would have uh, not really believed, you know, just, whoa, he's crazy. This thing was so monumental. This temple was built by Ezra and Zerubbabel after, you know, well after the destruction of Solomon's temple. Okay, so Solomon's was the first temple. This is the second temple. This temple was built by Ezra and Zerubbabel. Herod the Great, the ruler at the time of Jesus, he improved upon the temple and he expanded it. Now, construction began in 20 BC and was finished in 64 AD. Yeah. Josephus, the historian, says there were 10,000 people working on this. It's half a Mason city, a little less than half a Mason city. It was covered with gold plates and constructed with white marble. Off in the distance, it looked like it was snow-capped. When you got close, if the sunlight hit it, it was blinding because of the gold plating. It was beautiful. It was opulent. The temple was the center of Jewish life. People swore by the temple. Do you remember back a few chapters ago? He said, don't swear by the temple or anything in the temple. People were swearing by it. I swear by the temple that I will do it. You know, it was, the temple was, it was idolatrous. It was, they were worshiping the temple. Forty years after this, where we're at in our passage, 40 years later, six years after the temple's completion, Jesus' prophecy was literally fulfilled. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed as Roman soldiers stopped a massive Jewish insurrection. Now, the Roman leader actually wanted to leave the temple alone, but it's reported that a drunken soldier lit it on fire. Now, as this thing burned, the gold melted down through the cracks of everything. So they said, well, it's on fire. Go scrape all the gold out of it. And so the Roman soldiers went in there and every stone was unturned as they pulled out the gold. And not one stone was left upon another to the T fulfilled Jesus' prophecy. Now, I want to make note of Bible interpretation. Jesus interpreted this prophecy. He, he gave it and it was literally fulfilled. That sets the tone for interpreting prophecy in the rest of this chapter. You see, if Jesus said this whole thing's going to be torn down, not one stone upon another, Jesus was saying something plain as day literal, and it plain as day literally happened. That's where we get some of our rules of how to interpret biblical prophecy. Right? How did Jesus do it? Literally. Right? So his prediction prompts questions from the disciples, and that takes us to number two of our outline. Jesus describes the conditions from the ascension to the second coming, starting at verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So, he, you know, this thing that Jesus just said prompted this question. Now, to the disciples, this was probably like one question in their mind. They probably associated all these things together. 
the destruction of the temple, the end of the age, and the coming of the Messiah. This was probably all one thing, according to you know, typical Jewish eschatology in these days. They thought of this as one thing, but they actually ask at least two questions here. Now, <clears throat> Jesus doesn't really answer this directly. When will these things be? What he does is he seemingly addresses their incorrect assumption that this is like all one thing. Jesus deals with the sign of his coming at the end of his age, at the end of the age. He's going to answer that question. Now, here's a note uh, for you just to file away. And if you don't understand some of the words I'm saying, it's okay. Um, you'll learn these things over time as you get exposure to these. But from the premillennial, pre-tribulation rapture view, the rapture is not being dealt with in this passage. You know, I'm not going to give you all the reasons why we're not going to get into that, but I'll tell you that the rapture, the concept of the rapture um, is likely first introduced in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Remember, Jesus says, I go away and I make a place for you, and then I'll take you there. Now, John chapter 14 was the night right before the crucifixion. So chrono chronologically, what's going on here comes before that, right? So we don't believe that the rapture is in mind in this passage, okay? Other reasons being, Jesus is answering their question, which is, when will the end of the age be? Another reason that we don't believe uh, that this is dealing with the church as much as it's dealing with, um, you know, the, his second coming is because the Jewishness of the passage, and I'm going to point that out as we go. Jesus is speaking about his second coming. He's not dealing with the rapture of the church in this passage. <clears throat> so now he's going to describe the conditions from the time of his ascension until he returns to establish his kingdom. In verses four through eight, essentially he asks, answers their question in the negative. They said, what was the sign? And essentially verses four through eight are like, well, these aren't the signs, okay? Now this might be surprising to some of you. You'll see why. Verse four. And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For there are many or for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and of rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Okay. These are not the sign of the end. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 6. All these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Now, I bring this up because there are certain people that every time there's an earthquake, every time there's a famine, every time there's a war, they say, it's the end, it's the end. Well, telling you what, Jesus says those things are not the sign of the end. Okay? These are the general conditions of the world from the time where Jesus ascended to the time that he comes back to set up his kingdom. These are the conditions of life. You say, yeah, because it seems like these things have been going on in my life. I mean, pestilences. You could even say that maybe you could say the coronavirus is, is a pestilence, you know? Uh, you could maybe connect those two. I don't know. Um, famines. Is there famine going on? Yeah, that's why we have ministries like Compassion Internationals, because there are famines. Are there wars and rumors of wars? I mean, you can't even turn on the TV without rumors of wars. These are the conditions of life 
during these times. And what Jesus would tell you today, if these things bother you, is he would say this, the end of verse 6, see that you are not troubled. These things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. One other thing I want you to get here is the verse 8. He says, these things, all things are the beginning of sorrows. Now, let me tell you the Greek language here, it would read like this. If we wanted to take the Greek language literally, it would say these are the beginning of the birth pains or the labor pains. Now, gals, labor pains, how do they work? Well, they start at a certain point and then they increase in frequency and intensity until eventually you know, the baby's born. And that's the idea that Jesus has in mind here. You know, labor pains, you know, a tough deal. I mean, I know a little bit about it. Like, I've had a sliver before. Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I don't have any idea about labor pains, but, I, you know, I've been around them enough, and I know what it is. To, it, it increases in intensity and, uh, you know, frequency, Right? And that's what Jesus is saying. He says, you see all these things, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, all these different things. As those things keep increasing in frequency and intensity, you can file that in the back of your mind and say, look, it's coming, just like Jesus said, right? Now, he says, take heed that nobody deceives you. This is a condition in end times. Look at verse 4 and 5 there. Take heed that nobody deceives you, because many have come in his name, and this has happened uh, a bunch of times. People try to deceive Christians by telling them, here, the end is here. I've got this calculation. It's all worked out. This guy, um, uh, you know, Harold Camping. You guys remember Harold Camping? Um, this is within our life. I lived in Southern California seeing these big billboards that said October 26th is the end. And, and he had dates picked and the date came and went. And then he recalculated them and he got new billboards. The thing that was really compelling about this guy is he paid for all of it. He didn't even rip anybody off, like fleece the body of Christ. Well, I guess I don't know where his money came from. Probably came from his ministry through, you know, his whole life. I don't know. But he funded all these billboards. He really believed this. And he leads people astray. And people get into this like date setting sort of stuff. And then it comes and goes. And they get disappointed. And they get disillusioned with Christ. And they think Christians are lunatics and all this stuff. And uh, it's a bad thing. But Jesus said, look, there, you know, take heed that nobody deceives you. We'll talk about that more at the end. Now, verses 9 through 14, this is what the disciples are to expect through the church age all the way to the second coming. Now, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and betray one another and hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So starting at verse 4 all the way to here, he's given us the general conditions, the general layout of what's going to happen during the church age all the way up to his second coming. Verses 9 through 10 tells us that there will be persecution of Christians, and then in verse 10 it gives the effects that this will have on one another. <clears throat> we certainly see this persecution happening more and more in the United States, uh, but nothing like it has been happening in all the world for thousands of years. And verse 10 says, many will be offended, betray, and hate one another. These are the effects of persecution. Many believers will feel the squeeze and betray one another to not be persecuted. 
These are the conditions in end times. Verse 11 says there are false prophets and deception. Now, our world is certainly, you know, characterized. There's tons of false prophets. I turned on uh, Sid Roth on Christian television. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this guy, Sid Roth, right? And there were 10 false predictions within one half-hour episode, you know? I mean, he prophesied before a commercial break that if you come back from the commercial break, that he swears miracles were going to break out right there and then in the studio audience. And you come back from commercial break, and the only miracle was that, you know, I mean, he's trying to sell this guy's book, you know? And it's like, he's asking you for money and telling you that, oh, if you send in money, I swear that there's, oh, oh, miracles are going to break out. False prophets all over. You turn on TBN, you turn on any Christian television, it's rare that there's somebody on a Christian television channel that's not a false prophet, right? I brought in a video one day, I think, I can't remember if I brought in the video or not, of all the false Trump predictions that people said he would definitely have two consecutive terms. Our our world is filled with false prophets. There's another one, this guy from Bethel called Sean Bowles. He's He's the cell phone prophet. And I don't know if you've heard of this guy. He was at The Send uh, that Lou Angle did. You guys remember any of this stuff? Have you seen any of this? This guy, Sean Bowles, what he does is he comes in. He's called the cell phone prophet. And he comes in with his cell phone and he goes, oh, I got to prophesy. I got to prophesy. And he goes, there's somebody in here from Virginia. And they're a plumber. And this guy jumps up and, oh, it's me, it's me, it's me. And then he goes, oh, uh, man, God's really giving me something. Uh, You really love painting. Well, when you go into events like The Send, you fill out contact cards with your name and information and social media and all this stuff. And the guy sits there on social media and he says, I'm getting a word from the Lord. You're not getting a word from the Lord. You're getting a word from Mark Zuckerberg. You're getting a word from Facebook, man. You know, and he deceives people. And they deceive people. This huge movement that's like influencing every church in this town with its music is filled with false prophets. Chris Vallotton, all these different people make false predictions all the time. I get worked up about this because I love Jesus. I love the pure and the original, real Jesus Christ that doesn't need any of this gimmick and it deceives people. I just want to tell you, as it's my beloved flock that God's called me to be a steward over, I love you guys. Christian television is filled with false prophets. Watch out for people making predictions, especially if they don't come true. If they don't come true, I would just recommend that you just never listen to that person again, you know, that you just be done with that stuff, you know. Uh, Our world is filled with this stuff, and Jesus warns about it. Okay, I'm just going to move on. (sighs) Isn't that word um, in verse 11, isn't that uh, word many sad? That many will be deceived? Verse 12 said that there will be cold, calloused hearts. Verse 12. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Because sin is so rampant, eventually people's love just starts getting diminished. You know? You start to walk down the road. And, you know, when I first moved to L.A. and I saw the homeless people, my heart broke. Two, three, four years, five years after living there, I started to be like, I got to just look forward, you know? But people will stop being as loving because sin is so rampant everywhere. And, uh, That's to be expected in the world, but man, if that comes into the church, how tragic. Because when people in the church lack love, there's no fervor in Bible study. Nobody's raising their hands when they're singing. Nobody's, you know, got any life in their giving. It's a sad thing when loveless deadness comes into the church. 
Verse 13, true believers will make it. He who endures to the end will be saved. Endurance doesn't equal earn salvation. Uh, endurance proves salvation. And the gospel will be, will be widespread. That is not saying that Jesus cannot come back until we reach everybody on the planet. It's not, that's not what it's saying. How can I say that so confidently? Well, actually, God's going to help out uh, during the tribulation period with preaching the gospel to every creature. He's going to send an angel to do it, and this angel is going to broadcast the gospel to everybody. So everybody will have a chance. That's why I say this doesn't, this doesn't mean that... But I don't want to take away from the fact that it is the church's job to get the gospel out. But Jesus is certainly not limited when he can come back based on you and me. Important to point out. <clears throat> now, if those were the general signs or conditions, now Jesus gives us the sign of his second coming in verses uh, 15 through 28. Um, in verse 15, this is the sign of his second coming. <clears throat> it says in verse 15, therefore... When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. I would just stop there. Jesus says this is the sign. He says, when you see this thing happen, right? This is the sign of Jesus' return. And he says that it is the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel. So what Jesus is saying is Daniel, in his prophecy, in his book, Daniel gave the sign of the second coming. That's what Jesus is saying here, clearly. Do you remember Jesus is answering a question? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus is saying, oh, it's in Daniel. And it's called the abomination of desolation. Okay. What is an abomination? Um, to the Jewish mind, the use of the word abomination during this time, it would mean a gross idolatry. That's how they would be using the word. You look at it through the Old Testament, the context of this word. It means a gross idolatry, like an idolatrous worship, something just heinous form of worship. Desolation, that means that just complete, utter destruction. Now, if you took the literal language and you, and you looked at this literally, it, it's more like this, the abomination that brings desolation, the abomination that causes desolation, the absolutely gross, heinous, idolatrous, religious worship thing that brings about absolute destruction. And he says, when you see this gross form of idolatry, Standing in the holy place. That's the next part of this verse. We're taking this verse, just taking it apart. Holy place, this term, hagios topos, is always refers to in scripture the temple or the temple complex. So in other words, it's not when you see him in the holy land, when you see him in the holy city, it's the holy place, when you see the abomination of desolation in the temple. Jesus is saying, when you see the gross, heinous form of idolatrous worship that triggers desolation in the temple, that's the sign. And he says it's spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Now, if you've read the book of Daniel, um, congrats, because that's it's a kind of a tough read, some of it. In Daniel chapter 9, chapter 11, and chapter 12, this term abomination of desolation is used. 
In Daniel 11, verse 31, I'm going to read this verse to you. Daniel 11:31 says, "All forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, then they shall take away the daily sacrifices." <clears throat> and place there the abomination of desolation. So he's talking about the abomination of desolation there. He's saying that the sacrifices in the temple, they'll be gone. Um, and him here um, is believed by scholars to have like a dual meaning in Daniel 11. Um, it's referring to the Antichrist. And this prophecy uh, in Daniel that said they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation, there was a prefiguring of this that took place in 168 BC by a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. What this guy did was he sacrificed a pig to the god of Zeus on the temple of the altar. So what Daniel said in 1131 was fulfilled in that sense right then. Here's something that you, this is going to blow your mind. If that was the abomination of desolation, why then is Jesus telling them to continuously look for that then as a sign that is yet to come? You tracking? What we see with a lot of prophecies in the Bible, this happens a lot of times, is there's a near and a far fulfillment, right? There's something that happens in the time contemporary of the writer or just shortly after, and then there are things that are still yet to come that are centered on that same prophecy. Now, if Jesus is saying there to look for this prophecy as yet something to come, but yet Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed a pig in the temple, this is an example of one of those kind of prophecies where it had a near and there's a fulfillment, at least at Jesus' point, there are yet to come. You guys understand what I'm saying? Okay. I'm going to give you three main ideas regarding the abomination of desolation. I just gave you one, that uh, it was fulfilled in 168 BC. It wasn't fulfilled in history in 168 BC because Jesus is saying to look for this. Okay, so that's an easy one to refute. The next one is, is there are a lot of people, well-meaning people, good scholars that say this was fulfilled purely in 70 AD when the Romans came in and they destroyed the temple, that this was the fulfillment of that. Okay. <clears throat> Here's the biggest problem with that. And I think this is, I think it's really easy to refute. Here's the biggest problem with it. Jesus says that the abomination of desolation is the sign of his coming. Jesus has not come back. So that one just kind of blows that out of the water that the fulfillment of the abomination of desolation was the Romans sacking Jerusalem in AD 70. Couldn't be because Jesus didn't come back. Now, and you've got to remember the context. Jesus is answering the question, what is the sign of the end of the age and of your coming? So if Jesus didn't come back, then it wasn't fulfilled in AD 70. Now, here's something that goes even further on that same line of thinking. Daniel 12, 11, look at this one. This will blow your mind. Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. Man, our minds are getting blown all over this place. Oh boy, you guys are so grateful that I didn't bring all my notes. <laughs> okay, Daniel 12, 11. 
And from that time, the daily sacrifice is taken away. Okay, happened in 168 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes. Also happened in uh, AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. Um, uh, to some degree, both of those. And the abomination of desolation is set up. There shall be 1,290 days. Now, that's referring to the end in Daniel. There shall be 1,290 days, Daniel says, from the time that that abomination of desolation is set up. He's saying, you can set your calendar to it, right? 1,290 days is 3.58 years according to a Babylonian calendar, which Daniel used, and that's a 360-day calendar. So you take 360 times, um, you know, you just do the math. I don't need to impress you with all my facts and figures, but it's a three-and-a-half-year period, okay? This is, according to literal interpretation, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. This is halfway through Daniel's 70th week. For those of you who know what I'm talking about, that's great. If you don't, don't get tripped on it. Daniel 9.27 says that the abomination of desolation will mark the consummation of all things. Have the consummation of all things, has that taken place? Only metaphorically, but not literally. A literal interpretation of Scripture demands that this is yet a future event. Now, a lot of this interpretation that this has already been fulfilled in history has come from pressure to make sense of Matthew 24, 34 where it says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. They say, see, Jesus says right there that that generation will see it. There's been a lot of pressure to try to interpret that verse. And so people have said, all this has to have happened in the past. But I just gave you the problems with the two main reasons that people say that it's been interpreted in the past. The first one was easy. The second one, when you lay it all out, it's like, okay, it's clear. It's clear to me. I'll say that to be respectful to people that believe other things. It's clear to me and others. Now, this is the third view, that this is somewhere to be fulfilled in the future, okay? Now, if you're really thinking through this, you say, well, the abomination of desolation happens in a temple. The temple's destroyed. Well, if you do a little bit of research, you'll find out that there's actually been people since about the 50s been very serious about rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, committees of people working at it, recreating all the utensils, all the stuff, and we're going to reconstruct worship. It's pretty much on, it's been on its way for a long time. So when this abomination of desolation is standing in the holy place, it would appear to be that this is a rebuilt temple. People say that's just preposterous before 1948. 1948 is a key significant year in prophetic interpretation of the Bible and God's intention with Israel because Israel became a nation again. Before that, people would have said the <laughs> rebuilt temple. No, but God has been working with these people, bringing them back together. And there are people actively today pursuing this third temple, this rebuilt temple. So it seems to line up. Now, Paul elaborates on this future fulfillment. In other words, future in the sense we're this is yet ahead of us. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3 through 4, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come, the second coming, Christ coming to set up his kingdom, that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, 
the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, talking about the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above God, uh, above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. These things have not happened yet. For those of you that are like, okay, this is blowing my brain. You're, you're right, this is blowing my mind. What seems to be the literal interpretation is there's an abomination of desolation coming, and according to what Paul says, it looks like there's going to be an antichrist, and, and I don't want you to think of antichrist as opposing Christ. It's instead of Christ. There's going to be a guy that's in the temple, and he's saying, worship me. Don't worship God. Worship me. And that's the sign halfway through Daniel's 70th week that you can set your clock to 1,290 days until the end. Right? Bottom line, it's a future event that Jesus says will mark the exact countdown to his second coming. How do you know it hasn't happened yet? Jesus hasn't come back yet. If the abomination of desolation happened in AD 70, 1,290 days later, Jesus Christ would have set foot on this earth, if you interpret the Bible literally. That's the easiest way to refute that. Now, he gives some warnings here, verse 16 through 20. He says, let, the how, let all those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is up on the housetop not go down, take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Now, I don't believe the church is going to see this because of the timing of the rapture. I believe the rapture happens three and a half years before the abomination of desolation. So you'd say, well, why would Jesus write something like this then to believers? Well, um, to encourage believers, to encourage Jews that are alive in the tribulation period. You say, well, how do you get that from the text, that this isn't written to the church, that this is written to Jews? Well, there's a few things right in that last section. He says, let those who are in where? Judea. Then he says, uh, if you're on the housetop, don't go down and get anything. Well, in Israel, people hang out on their housetops. Another thing is, I mean, that's the way that architecture is there, is you have your patio on the top of the house. He says, don't even go down. Um, and, and some you know, scholars say, you could jump from rooftop to rooftop to rooftop in Israel and not go down. And then the last thing I think is probably the most compelling is the end of verse 19. He says, hopefully it's not on a Sabbath. That absolutely has nothing to do with the church. The church has no, nothing to do with the Sabbath. Right? So those three things tell you Jesus is talking to Jews. And it points towards the fact that the church won't be there. Now, verses 21 and 22, for then there will be great tribulation. Such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. This three and a half marker through the tribulation period is what theologians call the great tribulation. They call the seven-year period the tribulation, and they call the three and a half mark then from then on the great tribulation. Now, I just want to point out one more thing about this. If this had been fulfilled in history, Jesus says this great tribulation is going to be such as never been since the beginning of the world, since the beginning of time, nor shall ever be. Okay? The destruction of the temple in AD 70, 
they say there were about 1.1 million Jews died and another 100,000 or so taken hostage, taken as slaves. Okay, that is not the worst tribulation that the world has ever seen. It was terrible, but it is certainly not the worst tribulation even for the Jews. I mean, look at the Holocaust. It's just another thing pointing towards that this is yet future. He says, verse 22, unless those days were shortened, no flesh should be saved, but for the elect's sake, the days will be shortened. That has led people to think that the church will be in the great tribulation because he uses the word elect. But the word in the scripture, elect, is also attributed to the Jews. The book of Revelation tells us that there are Jews that get saved during the great tribulation. And that's what Jesus is talking about there. Verse 23 through 25. I'm going to try to wrap this up fast. I know we're two minutes over. He says, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here's the Christ, or there, don't believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise, show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. During this time of great tribulation, people will be saying, I'm the Messiah, and they will be doing signs and wonders, or at least faking them or something. Uh, during this time, and people will be getting led astray. Right? The application for us here today is don't be a signs and wonder seeker, you know, because you can get led astray. Right? Now, verse 26 says, Therefore, I, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, don't go out there. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Charles Manson said he was Jesus and he went out to the desert. <laughs> uh, David Koresh, you know, said he was Jesus, went out to the desert. Uh, the Bible says right there, look, if he says he's in the desert, don't go out there, you know? And then another one, he, he says, look, if somebody says he's in the inner rooms, well, Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus has come back and he's in an inner room. <laughs> and only like super people get to, you know, know that. It's pretty remarkable. So verse 27 says, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. So also will the sun, coming of the Son of Man be. Uh, in other words, you know, you see lightning, it's conspicuous. The second coming of Christ, it's not going to be a secret thing. It's going to be conspicuous. And then one of the easiest verses in the Bible to interpret, verse 28. For where the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. <laughs> what? Well, actually, literal, literal Greek here, eagles is vultures. Okay, so here's what I think it means. You know how, like, you know, if there's a dead body and you look up and there's vultures? The vultures are a sure sign that there's a carcass. And so I think what Jesus is saying is all these things are the sure sign that I'm coming, that the end is coming. I think it's that simple. Let me give you some applications and then we're done. First of all, don't get deceived. There is a strong delusion in the church of Christ today, and it is that one of the biggest things that people are being deceived with today is man-centered gospel, right? That all that church is about is for you to live a better life, right? And so you can pick one. You can go to, you know, counseling. You could become a Buddhist. You could go meditate. You could do mindfulness. You could go to 12-step. You could do whatever. Just pick one because it's all about helping you live your life better. Now, that might be true with any of those other things, and there might be great merit in some of those things, not the false religions, of course, but the meditation or whatever. There might be great merit in those things, but that is not what church is about, the good things that happen to you in your life are the byproduct of surrendering your life fully to Jesus Christ. And it's all about him and his purpose for your life. It's not about you, right? Those other things may be all about you, but the church is not about you. And the Bible is not about me. It's about Christ. And so don't be deceived. 
and end times because that is one of the greatest deceptions that's going around is man-centered gospel. Read 2 Timothy. He says people will be lovers of themselves. They won't endure sound doctrine. Watch out for deception. How do you watch out for deception? Well, if my wife comes in to go to bed tonight and the lights are off and, you know, she's got a beard, I'm going to know that's not her. <laughs> Why? Because I've studied the real thing. I know what my wife is like and I know she doesn't have a beard, right? So if you study the true gospel, when something false comes along that's man-centered, you're going to say, no, 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 this is man-centered, man. All these teachers talk about is me. All these song lyrics in this supposedly Christian worship song, they're all about me. They're not about Jesus. And you'll be able to spot that stuff as you study the genuine gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we don't leave anything out. Now, next thing, we can avoid the despair that's going to come in end times. Why? Well, here's a good one. Like Jesus said, every time you see an earthquake, famine, war, he said, see that you're not troubled. These things must happen. These are not it. I don't need to start despairing when I turn on the news. As a Christian that knows his Bible, I look at the news and say, this is happening. This is Jesus said this stuff would happen. If my Lord told me this is going to happen and don't be troubled, then by golly, I've got a good reason to not panic, don't I? Now, last one, the deadness of heart. Remember when Jesus dished out the rebuke in 90 AD, roughly, to the church of Ephesus? He said, you know, you've got a lot of good things going, but I've got this against you, that you left your first love. Now, as a Christian, this is what I want to leave you with today. I want you to scan yourself with this. Are you as in love with Jesus and with being a Christian today as you have ever been? if not more? How about your love towards people? How about it when you drive down the this, this, this side of the road and you see somebody broken down? Do you feel love for them? How about it when you see somebody that's struggling and they're pitiful and they don't deserve anything in life, but how do you feel towards them? Are you bitter? Is your heart getting calloused? Because Jesus said that's going to happen because sin is so rampant. Are you the sort of person that turns on the TV and it doesn't even surprise you anymore that there's another shooting in a, in a school? These are the signs of end times. How do you keep your heart fresh? Well, Jesus said in Revelation, he gave a good application. He said, repent and go back, therefore, and do the first works. So if your love's grown cold, you need to get back into that love relationship with Jesus. To turn from whatever it is you're doing with your life spiritually and get back into that love relationship with Jesus because he doesn't want us to have calloused hearts in end times, anytime.